Partika would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land we record on, the Wadjuk people. We also acknowledge the role of Aboriginal people as the first scientists in Australia. Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. My name is Rose Kerr, your host for the podcast, and this season we're talking all things environmental. Today I'm joined by Francis Chucky Raven, who works in taxidermy. He stopped by the podcast to talk all about how taxidermy works and all things macabre. Welcome to the podcast, Chucky. Thank you. Starting off, we always have to ask this. What do you actually do? It's a broad question. Um, so my role is uh, as a museum preparator, which mostly focuses on taxidermy, but it can be anything from taxidermy to creating displays and, and sort of getting everything ready to go on display. So skeleton preparation, um, models. We do a lot of sculpting and molding of like lifelike animals that we can't necessarily taxidermy. Yeah, it's a, it's a broad job that covers a lot of things. How on earth do you end up doing that as a job? Um, a lot of random turns through life. Uh, I was always interested in it. I think as a kid, I thought it was the most fascinating thing ever. And I sort of loved science, but I sort of went the way of art. So until five or six years ago, I was working backstage in theatre. Oh, cool. Um, and a lot of the training for that was sculpting and moulding and, and that sort of thing. But I... Got a job overseas uh, in Dubai where I worked for a couple of months where it kind of... I'd been working in theatre for a while um, and like really enjoying it, um, working backstage and on Fringe Festival, that sort of thing. But I kind of fell out of love with it a little bit when I was over in Dubai. So when I came back to Australia, I thought, you know what, I'm going to take a couple months off and just do whatever I want to do, which had been taxidermy. So... I contacted a wildlife clinic and <laughs> sent them an email. I had to think carefully how to word it because mm. basically I said to them, look, um, I'm wanting to learn taxidermy. I'm really passionate about um, ecology and, you know, conserving nature and that sort of thing. Uh, I want to learn taxidermy. Do you have any deceased animals <laughs> um, that I might be able to use? And surprisingly, they messaged back and they were really keen for oh, it. So, cool. yeah, I, I watched a couple of videos on YouTube and had a red hot go at home. Um, had a couple of mistakes and a couple of funny-looking possums and that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I got in contact with a lady at the museum who's their uh, senior preparator who does taxidermy, and she was giving me some advice on how to go about doing it, how mm. I could improve, and eventually that turned into uh, work experience. So yeah. I spent a couple of months um, actually on and off for about a year uh, going and learning taxidermy from her. So, wow. yeah, kind of developed from there. When you were doing the kind of prop stuff, going back to that for a second, mm. so your formal training is in making props? Yeah, props and scenery. So I studied at Whopper for three years um, and it was everything from building sets for their uh, productions. Um, they do, oh gosh, they do so many. They do like, I don't know, like 20 productions a year. Wow. So we'd have to build the set for that and all the props and do all the painting. And mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes it would be masks and you know, fake guns and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's yeah, my background. And did you find those skills were helpful in going into taxidermy? Yeah, surprisingly, it's, it's so much of it is the same. It's just mm. a different medium that you're working with. It's, it might sound macabre, but you're going from working with like fabrics and fiberglass to working with, you know, well, animal skins and yeah. feathers and, and that sort of thing. But the, the, the practical 
skills that you need to actually shape things and, and bring it all together. It's all pretty much the same. With that in mind, how you said when you were emailing the first place asking if you could have some of the animals to practice taxidermy and learn. <laughs> yeah. I really wanted to ask, because one of the biggest questions that we had is how do people generally react to the whole taxidermy thing? I've, for the most part, people are quite intrigued. That, that it's, most people don't tend to freak out <laughs> in saying that some people do tend to freak out. Uh, no, a lot of people don't really know much about what it is. Um, and the people that do kind of have misconceptions about how it's done and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I've had some people who are completely against it. They think it's unethical um, and that it's like insulting to the animal's memory and that sort of thing. Um, but I, and I try to have conversations with people uh, who hold those opinions because like my view is that it's actually kind of for the greater good of animals, I think. Um, you're taking something that's deceased and it's it's no longer I mean it's not it's not doing anything and it's just going to go to I mean this might seem macabre but it's going to go to waste Mm. and you're taking that and if you can prolong its life and give it another purpose in educating people about conservation and about um you know how that animal died or how lots of the animals died which is road deaths or you know um cats and you know feral animals uh killing them then I think it's it's worth it yeah um, but yeah, for the most most part, people are just interested in how it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. I will have so many questions yeah. about that yeah. in a second. What do you think the role of taxidermy is in that conservation space? What kind of power do you think it holds? I think it's really important um, because, like, you can go up to animals in the in the wild. You can only get so close uh, to actually properly appreciate them. They either need to be caged or taxidermy so um like in the museum you go there and and in the old museum we had the mammal gallery and so we couldn't go and see lions and tigers and bears um back in the 1940s and and that sort of thing when the gallery was coming together and so they served a great purpose on bringing you know african animals to western australia and animals Mm. from all around the world it's actually a really good point that the alternative is that animals have to be in cages i think that's something that people often forget yeah yeah, and also there's the importance of, I think when people hear that, you know, koalas' habitats are being destroyed or, or that sort of thing, people tend to want to switch off because it's horrible and you don't want to think about it and you don't want to think that maybe there is something you can do about it to fix it because, well, then you have to or you don't do it and you know that you could. Um, but when you're actually faced with an animal in front of you and you've got the story of that animal's life and how, okay, maybe it came from the fight bushfires or you know it, it it died away i died from you know being hit by a car or something you have to face the fact that those things are happening mm. um and i think it encourages people to do things about it and also uh, with animals that go extinct we can actually keep showing people the animals that no longer exist because we've got them preserved and mm. so you can keep reminding people that this is what's going to happen if we don't change the way we go about living Do you see it as more of a science or an art? I honestly don't think I can distinguish between the two. I think it takes the art to portray it accurately, scientifically, I guess. I mean, you're, it's, it really is quite a hands-on job. You've got to replicate 
all the features of the animal and like all the muscles and the joints and that sort of thing. Um, and you need the scientific knowledge to do that, but you need the artistic ability to make the science work, yeah. I guess. Yeah. It probably leans more towards art. Um, yeah, it's a fine line. It really yeah. is. Do you feel like you know the animals quite well because of having to recreate them in that realistic way? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. When when I go back and compare some of the first birds that I worked on, um, so birds are mostly what I work on, um, haven't quite gotten the knack of mammals yet. They're like quite complicated to do. But when I go back and look at past birds that I've worked on, that at the time I thought were really realistic and, you know, like I was really, really happy with them and I still am because I had a lower skill set then and that sort of thing. But I look at them now and it's, they just look, ter- like they look terrible. <laughs> they just don't look realistic. It's kind of like, you know, the uncanny valley? Yes. Yeah. So yes. the idea that, um, I'm not sure if the listeners know about it, but the idea that it's sort of, I don't know, like that kind of uneasy feeling you get when you see a mannequin that looks a little bit too human mm. or when you start drawing pictures of people's faces and it looks like quite okay but there's something wrong with it that makes you feel uneasy. I find that I actually get that with the birds that I'm more familiar working with. So I'll be able to tell like when a tawny frog mouth doesn't have its head in the right angle or that sort of thing. Mm. Um, yeah, and you also get to know them. I've learned so much about anatomy of animals because you are dissecting the animals to, to recreate it. And you've got to, um, I'm sure we'll get into it later, but part of it is removing the muscles of the animal and replacing it with, um, you kind of recreate them uh, in various materials. But you learn a lot about how wings work and how fatty deposits work and all that kind of thing and how feathers connect into the muscles and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Kind of starting off into many questions that we have. Yeah. What does, say you're working on a taxidermy project, you've just started, what does a kind of day in the life look like for you? Okay, so at the museum and I suppose generally in taxidermy, I'll start again. Yeah. So uh, at the museum, all the specimens are frozen Mm -hmm. for a little while um, because everything needs to be quarantined because we don't want to bring any bacteria or bugs or anything like that into the collection. So normally we'll take the specimen out of the freezer um, and you actually begin taxiderming it while it's frozen because it's a lot easier to work with. You think about trying to cut up a chicken breast that's frozen versus, well, you know, semi-defrosted. It's always easier when, when you can grab a better hold of it. Mm. Um, it's such a, it's quite a long process, but essentially with, with, with birds, you would lay it out on a um, butcher's paper to clean up the mess and you separate the feathers along the, along the breastbone. Mm-hmm you part them aside you wet them down so that there's like quite a neat part and then you dissect through from the essentially the breastbone through to the cloaca uh and you do what i call taking off the pajamas no that's so good (laughs) it's there's there's not really a nice way to put it but essentially you are taking the pajamas the skin off of the actual animal so you have to follow around all the muscles and everything Mm. and, and there's a there's a thin uh layer between the muscles and the skin and you essentially have to stay in that layer because if you go too far into the muscle then you're going to leave muscle on the skin and if you go too far out then you're going to nick the skin and you end up with uh, an animal full of holes Mm. so yeah so you work around the um all the breast tissue and all you go around all the back and then you've got to separate you leave the wing bones in the actual skin along with the feet bones and the skull um and then you put the body to one side because you've got to uh, recreate that 
in a little bit. Um, so then you have to, the, the whole purpose of removing the muscles and everything is you're going to, you have to remove anything that's going to rot. So you have to go all the way into the neck and the skull actually stays with the animal because with birds, it's too hard to re- you know, replicate a skull and then put it in the pajamas. Um, <laughs> uh, so you leave that in there, you have to clean it all out and you remove all the, um, all the tissue from the, uh, all the bones. You have to remove the fat anywhere that there's deposits. So a lot of birds have fat at the base of where the feathers actually enter the skin mm. because I'm, sh- I, I'm not entirely, I'm not a bird anatomist, but I believe it's because they then transport some of that oil out to their feathers for the you you know, waterproof coating. Um, so you have to try to remove most of that. And we're using something called borax, which is actually a cleaning agent. Um, it's kind of like a salt. And what it does is... Uh, it's called sweetening. It sweetens the meat, but it basically uh, becomes bacteria proof. Okay. You know, bacteria can't eat it and it really dries it out and that sort of thing. So as you're dissecting it, you're sprinkling this almost like talcum powder all through the animal. Um, and you've got to work quickly because obviously that then dries it out. Yeah. And then... Yeah. What so, goes inside? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, that's quite the, the tricky part is you take um, essentially what's the torso, I guess, um, trying to think how to explain it so people yeah. can visualize it, but it's the... Basically, the, the, the cooked chook, if you imagine it, yeah. you, you end up with basically removing that from yes. the specimen. Um, and you have to replicate the size and shape and all those um, muscles and everything uh, in hemp. Oh. So, yeah, so we take this um, hemp rope and you pull out fibers, you bunch them all together and you slowly wrap it with twine mm. and mold it into the shape of the animal. Um, the reason we use hemp is that it's a little forgiving. You can kind of work it into different shapes and it also stays dry because it's quite a dry product. Uh, so you replicate the body in that and then that will go into the pajamas. You then thread wires along all of the wing bones and all of the feet bones and you then replace any of the, um, so the muscles on the legs and the wings have to be replaced again, same method with hemp and you sort of wrap it, wrap the hemp around the wing bones to secure it to it and then you fit that with wire into the uh, body form that you've created and then everything gets stitched up and positioned and the wings get brought into the right way and then you've got wires that come through the legs you've got wires that come through the legs and they'll connect into your mount and then you you end up with kind of a stuffed animal that then needs all the finishing done to it Mm, yeah what are some of those kind of finishings so with birds it's a lot of preening the feathers so you actually have to go through and a lot of the feathers will get sort of messed up a fair bit as you're moving it you try as much as possible to not move it around too much when you're working on it Um, because you know you can you can snap feathers and they get kind of separated and that sort of thing but basically I my technique is to go through with um, basically a mascara brush Um, works really well to pull all the feathers together and then tweezers to basically position them on top of each other and you're trying to get all of the yeah all of the down on 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 the chest like into position and cover up the stitches and that sort of thing and yeah it's a lot of at that point you're looking at uh, heaps of reference images of the animal Um, and if you've got other specimens of the animal um, taxidermy then you kind of bring those in and you can use those as an example because different birds like they put their weight in a different area so owls kind of stand upright but then you get you know you think of willy wagtails and they're kind of a little more horizontal their their face is a bit further their face is a bit further forward uh yeah that's fascinating you must have the best attention to detail 
Yeah, I obsess over it a little bit. Yeah. 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 But um, one thing we actually do, because you can kind of get tunnel vision, you start thinking that you've got it right. Um, we actually put it in the freezer overnight, which helps keeps it damp uh, and come back and work on it the next day. So it's usually, it's usually two days work um, and it helps to walk away from it and come back and you go, okay, actually that's not what it would look like. It'd be moving a bit far more forward and, and the wings would be a bit tucked back and, and that sort of thing. Jumping in, this is our last episode for season three of the Particle Podcast. Very exciting stuff, but we will be returning soon with a new summer season. So if you've got any questions regarding to bushfire, sunscreen or surfing, send them to particle at scitech.org.au. As this is our last episode for the season, I'd like to say a huge, huge thank you to Richie from the Raw Den, who's been letting us record after hours in his shop. The smell of chai has been an absolute delight every time we've come in to record. Also, a big thank you to Michael and Zaya who come in every single week to film the podcast, Rocky who edits, and Marlo who listens to every episode before it's released. And of course, I can't let the season finish without thanking all of the wonderful guests who join us on the Particle Podcast. They take time out of their busy schedules just to come and have a chat to us, and it means the absolute world to get to share their stories. If you have enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a comment, let us know on Instagram, rate us in a podcast app, tell a friend. We'd really love to see the audience grow. Back to the podcast. I don't doubt there's quite a few of these because you work yep. in such a specific area, but what are some unexpected skills that you've picked up moving from prop design into taxidermy? Hmm. I, I'm pretty good with the scalpel now. Yeah, um, yeah. I do sort of art in my spare time and, you know, like, um, yeah, just getting better with like exacto blades yeah. and that sort of thing, cutting out fine details and that sort of thing and carving um, when you're doing sculptures and that sort of thing. I've got quite, quite good at that. Um, and also just... I think understanding the anatomy of animals yeah. and I've, I've, I mean, I learned, I learned as much as anyone did in high school about it, but I didn't go to study biology or anything in university. So I think a lot of things come as a shock to me when you start understanding, you know, where certain bones are in birds that are in humans or, you know, similar to lizards. Mm. Um, yeah. And that sort of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess with that in mind, what are some kind of essential skills you think you need to have to be a good taxidermist? Yeah, I think attention to detail. It's it's one of those things that you can't half do it. Um, and I think also it's one of those things that you've really got to have a passion to do. You've got to really want to do it because to be honest, it is, you got, it's, it's a bit gruesome because you are dissecting animals um, and you, you kind of have to work through that. I mean, I've got a, a pretty strong stomach and I've always been interested in kind of the macabre and, 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 curiosities and that sort of thing but even I find at times that you you have to kind of just swallow and and you know and, yeah. and, and keep going with it yeah um but also even aside from skills it's it's a really hard thing to get into because there's just not many avenues for it you kind of just have to teach yourself and hope that you find someone that can teach you um over in England they have some schools and stuff but in Australia for the most part uh there are some small courses you can do here and here and there in Perth um, but yeah, most people that I've met have been self-taught wow. and then have gone on to find someone who could mentor them. So huh. do you hope to mentor yeah. someone else one day? I would love to, I think not yet. Cause I'm, I'm probably not, um, where I want to be before I start teaching people. But I honestly, I love passing on knowledge. And I mean, I think that's one of the great things about working in museums is that you get to 
just pass on knowledge about everything and, and anything and yeah yeah definitely that's something overwhelmingly yeah. we've heard from people at museum is yeah. there's lots of sharing of yeah information, i which is lovely i did uh, begin to teach my brother taxidermy um but life got in the way so we haven't actually finished that project yet but yeah so i've, <laughs> I've got a freezer full of projects um <laughs> at uh at my wonderful mother's house at the moment. So, yeah. I feel like that sets the tone really well yeah. for our next section, which is mm-hmm. our questionable questions. Okay. These are from the broader particle team. So mm-hmm. Zyra and Michael who are with us. All right. Some of these we touched on before, but mm-hmm. I'm going to include them anyway. Would you ever taxidermy your own pet? I, so we've got stick insects at home. Oh. And believe it or not, you can kind of taxidermy stick insects. Um, you preserve them in the way that... Um, I always get this wrong. I always go to say etymologists. Entomologists. It's entomologists. <laughs> it's terrible. But in the way that entomologists do, so you, you clean them up, dry them out, and pin them and that sort of thing. So I do have designs to do that for some of our stick insects. Um, as far as pets go, I don't know that I could do it to my own pets. I originally thought that I could, and like I thought it would be a quite nice way to remember them. But like I've gotten quite attached to pets now that I think it would it'd be a bit heartbreaking to see them. But that being said, I have seen some really beautiful pet taxidermy done. Um, particularly, there's, a, there's like a sleeping pose. So if mm. you imagine a cat curled up on the floor and it tucks its head under mm-hmm. its arm or like a dog in a similar position. And those are like really beautiful pieces of taxidermy because it's not trying to make the animal alive. It just looks like the animal's sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it can actually be done in a um, respectful and actually beautiful way. Just yeah. hard to do your own pet, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also, um, I've had a lot of people ask me if I would do their taxidermy, their pets. Um, the, the, the tricky thing with it is I, I would say yes, but it would have to depend on the kind of on the person and the view that they have of their pet. Cause again, it's with the, like you might not be able to tell that a dog doesn't look like a dog did when it was alive, but the person will. Yes. Um, and like one of the hardest parts to get right about pet taxidermy would be the eyes because mm. you look at your puppy dog's eyes and that sort of thing. And they do, you'd know if they don't look how they did back yes. then. So if I had a friend that wanted to taxidermy their dog who I knew was like really attached to their dog, I'd probably say no because I can't make it look how the dog did. But if I had like a friend who's like me who's a bit quirky and wants to get, you know, like, well, yeah, their dog or ferrets or anything yeah. like that, then it, it could be done in a way that that person's happy with it. But I'd want to make sure that they know what they're getting into before I go and, you know, yeah. I actually did get to taxidermy... Uh, a 40-year-old, I think it was 40-year-old barn owl. Whoa. Um, one of the wildlife centres, uh, it couldn't be returned to the wild, so it had stayed with the um, the lady in charge of the wildlife centre, and so and she, and it passed away, sadly. Um, but because I had such a good relationship with them and they had helped me get off the ground with my taxidermy, um, they asked if I wanted, if I could taxidermy Aww. it for her. So thankfully she was really happy with how it turned out. And so, yeah, it was beautiful. That's a good example of when it's quite special and they can yeah. still tell the story of yeah. the 40-year-old owl. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Can you, maybe not you specifically, <laughs> but can people taxidermy humans? Yes. Ah! And it's been, it's been done, although questionably. Yeah. Um, so the, the trick with it... <laughs> It's it's bizarre to talk about this. The, the trick with it is, if you think about birds and and mammals, they have feathers and fur yes. to hide the skin. So when right. you actually taxidermy them, if you were to push away the feathers, the skin takes on a lifeless quality. It'll look okay. yellow or it'll be you know tanned like leather. Um, so there have been people who have taxidermied 
people and you kind of tan the skin and turn it into leather, wow. um, it never ends up looking like people because that uncanny valley thing is almost yeah. impossible to, to, to get right. Um, and obviously the skin ends up having to be painted over and you wow. end up with these like really weird patchy things. But there's a guy called Gunther von Hagens who's an amazing nut job. I think he's from Germany. And he invented plastination. I don't know if you've heard about no. that. So there's an exhibit that too is called the human, I think it's called the Amazing Human Body Exhibit. Okay. And basically what he's done is he's taken people who've donated their bodies um, to science or specifically to his thing. He preserves them in ethanol to take all the water out. And then he puts them in a vacuum in a tub of silicon. So oh. the ethanol evaporates and all of the ethanol uh, is replaced with silicon. So yes. all the veins, every tissue, every cell is impregnated with silicon and then he um, catalyzes it so it turns into, you know, so it solidifies and you end up with actually just a really lifelike human body. Wow. Um, all the veins are intact, all the stomach, you know, it all like everything's intact. So you can actually do amazing um kind of like medical displays uh, of like, I saw one where they, it's kind of diverting from taxidermy a yeah. bit, but they had the entire n- um, nervous system of humans because they oh. put the silicon into the nervous system and then dissolved away the rest of the person. So you end up with this like spider web in the shape wow. of a human, sorry, the spider web in the shape of a human um, of veins. That would yeah. be phenomenal. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's incredible. Um, they've actually used plastination at the new museum for a lot of the reptiles on display. Okay. Um, reptiles are really hard to taxidermy because they, I mean, their skin is really, really thick, even under the scales. It's really hard to actually take all the pajamas off. Yeah. Um, so they plastinate it uh, and it preserves the color a bit better. Huh. And then if that fades, they have to paint it. But yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's really, really cool. I mean, you've, you've got to be mad to invent something oh, like that. 100%. But a little bit weird. Yeah, yeah. That's astounding. Such a yeah. good name for yeah. him as well. Yeah, it's, he's got that and he's, he's got like, he's a short guy, he's bald, he wears like a black fedora and round glasses. Ah! He just looks like the kind of guy that would do that. That's perfect. <laughs> Have you ever had any really strange requests come in to taxidermy? Um, probably, yeah, one of my friends asked if I could do her ferrets when they passed away. Oh, no. um, yeah, <laughs> that's about the weirdest I've gotten. Um, yeah. That's, that's not that's too bad. It. Yeah, it's not, it's not really too weird. bad, no. Or, uh, actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, my, <laughs> I'll say a friend of mine yes. um, who's covered in tattoos yes. desperately wants their tattoos preserved when they pass away. Oh, wow. Which is, a, there's a company in America that does it and they, it's, it's incredible. Um, they basically do it like leather. And I've, so this friend of mine has actually asked whether or not that would be po- a possible slash legal to yeah. do in australia um there's like gray gray area laws around it um yeah because some yeah. tattoo studios i've seen they actually yeah. have the skin yeah. up there yeah it's um there's a couple of um full japanese body suits whoa um yeah of, of like old i think yeah just like full body tattoos that have just been preserved so oh. that's probably the weirdest yeah. i've gotten <laughs> yeah even if it's only hypothetical yeah. it's still pretty yeah. weird What's the most difficult animal to taxidermy in, or one maybe that you've either never yeah. done or so? Not yet? The hardest one that I've done was an echidna. Oh, whoa. yeah. Um, but actually, from the perspective of cleaning the specimen, um, yeah. they're so muscular, huh? and like there's just like they got muscle on muscle on muscle, and to actually get through it to get to the skin is really really difficult. And they have um, 
the quills actually go into the skin, into a layer of muscle. So when you take the pajamas off, um, you actually end up with like, yeah, it's like a layer of muscle that's like woven into these quills and you've wow. got to remove it all because it'll, it'll rot. So that was honestly a couple of days mm. of like using wire brushes to try to, to try to remove that. And then also positioning echidnas because the issue is they're really wrinkly animals. <laughs> They've got like a lot of excess skin. So you can end up, making a giant echidna from a small echidna because if you don't give it any wrinkles, you end up with this big spiky pillow. Um, on that, there's a, there's, oh, there's a great photo of a, one of the first walruses that was ever taxidermied. And it's enormous because the bloke that did it had never seen a walrus. He got the, oh, And so he tried no. to get rid of all the wrinkles by stuffing it as big as he could. <laughs> so it's a massive walrus. Um, yeah, but I think in terms of difficulty... Um, a lot of mammals are really hard to do. Horses in particular, I know, um, have like a lot of veins on their face. Like, and, and you won't necessarily notice it until it's not there. Mm. Um, so a lot of the sculpting that they do for mammalian taxidermy is incredible. So they take off the, the hide and they tan it, but then they will spend like weeks carving from foam and putting oh. all these veins and different channels and they, they will sculpt each individual muscle of the animal so that it's realistic. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's um, some of the... Um, they have taxidermy like championships in America and it is, it's incredible the detail they go into. It's yeah. amazing. What animal is like on your to-do list that you'd really like to taxidermy? Funnily enough, it's just a kookaburra. Oh. Yeah, it's my favourite bird um, and it's, it's one that I would love to have in my collection because mm. um, I have my own private collection of ones that I've been working on and, and that sort of thing. So I'd love to do a kookaburra. Um, I'd also love to do, I do a lot of, well, a lot. I do as a hobby, a bit of skeleton articulation. Okay. So I take like roadkill that's that's already been cleaned by ants and that sort of thing and, and try to bring all those bones together in the shape of the animal. Cool. Um, and so I'd love to do a full fox one day. Um, yeah, I think that'd be cool. What an interesting challenge. Does it feel a bit like a pu- like a puzzle? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's um, I recently... So you'll see some at the at the new museum, uh, one skeleton in particular that I had to put together and it was, I think it's about 300,000 years old. And so putting that together, obviously we couldn't drill through the bones and just thread them together on a wire or anything. So we had to make individual supports for each bone and, and bring it together. So that was the trickiest thing that I've done to date. Um, but if you're just doing sort of... Um, specimens that aren't as important you know like foxes and that sort of thing you can just drill through the spinal column and you put rods and that sort of thing so it's a bit bit more straightforward yeah yeah if you do find a fox or Mm -hmm. some kind of animal that has been killed on the side of the road what's the what can you do to give it kind of the best chance to either pass it along to someone else to taxidermy or maybe if you were someone who wants to taxidermy yourself yeah so actually a lot of the um i did a couple of early pieces that i did were from roadkill and one of the important things is it has to be fresh. Mm. Um, we, we do get a lot of offers of people saying, oh, you know, um, I've, I've seen this animal on the side of the road. It's, it's dead, but do you want it to taxidermy? And unfortunately, a lot of the times because of Australian summers, if it's oh. been out there for more than two hours, it's, it's, it's too warm yeah, and wow. it'll, it'll just rot by the time we get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, with foxes and rabbits, anything that's a feral animal is... If it's if it's in introduced species, it's fair game. Okay. Uh, anything that's an, a native animal, you actually need the proper permissions to do it. Um, so there is a there's kind of some grey areas, and, and the laws are changing around it. Um, but you can actually just get in contact with I think it's Department of 
Parks and Wildlife, but they always change the name. Um, yeah. And you can basically say, hi, um, you know, I'm a hobby taxidermist or feather collector or whatever. I found this specimen. Just want you to just want to let you know that I have it. Um, I'm not going to, you have to not profit from it or sell or trade or anything like that. And, and they'll basically say, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so if you do happen to hit an animal and it is fresh and it is deceased, you can contact the museum. Um, and if not, if the museum doesn't want it, then there'll be someone who the museum can pass you on to. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, recently, uh, a mallee fowl, which is quite oh, a rare wow. bird, yeah, um, there was a roadkill, one of those. And so we're actually really thankful to have that because they're really hard to come across because, you know, they're endangered. Um, so, yeah, check if it's fresh. Yeah. But if it's not fresh, get the bones. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've lost count of the amount of times that I've stopped on the side of the road to try to collect something to find out that <laughs> you don't want to put it in your car. <laughs> mm, yeah. No. So normally a bit gruesome, but uh, check the eyes. And if the eyes seem fresh, then the animal should be fresh. But if there's bugs around them or they're yeah. too cloudy or it's best to leave it. Yeah. Leave it <laughs> yeah. for the animals. Yeah, they can yeah, take care yeah, of Yeah, exactly. It. Yeah. So if you do find one then, do you have to, is there anything you can do to make it as safe as possible to take? <laughs> um, I always carry gloves and a plastic bag, <laughs> um, mostly for the smell in the car, yeah. but also because, yeah, you have to think that um, a lot of animals like kangaroos and stuff will have ticks on them mm. um, that just were naturally there when the animal was alive, but now that it's deceased, they're looking for someone else. Yeah. Um, and so you've got to be careful with that sort of thing. But the best The best protocol to follow is to freeze it. Um, preferably in a freezer that's not got your food in it. Yeah. I would definitely say don't do that. Um, so I have a freezer that's separate for my taxidermy and I put it in there for usually about a week. Yeah, wow. um, minimum is good because it just kind of kills any um, any sort of bugs or viruses or anything that might be in the animals. Um, yeah, and just wash your hands. I wear gloves when I taxidermy. Not everyone does. Um, it just depends on where the animals come from. So if it's off a farm and you know where it's come from and you know say you've got a friend and, and some farm animals passed away then it's going to be cleaner than a fox on the side of the road yeah. um but yeah and you tend to wash the animal as well as you're taxidermying it um that's one of the steps is to sort of rinse everything out and yeah yeah good hygiene but that's that goes for everything especially mm. in this time and sealed bags i'm sure sealed bags yeah <laughs> yeah and a, and a car, and whoever you're carpooling with needs to be <laughs> agreed to it. Yeah, shout out to uh, my sister Anna, who was the first person to stop to let me pick up a fox on the Aww. side of the road. Aww. So that was that was kind of what got me into it. I, I had just we were coming back from uh, Bustleton, and I was getting into taxidermy, and I said to her, "I like, I will give you two hundred dollars <laughs> if we see a fox on the side of the road, if you let me pull over and get it." And we looked up and there was a fox on the side of the road. Oh, I haven't no. paid her the $200, but I got the fox. So. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I had questions about that, actually. With the skeletons, when mm. you're doing taxidermy in general, do you keep them and use them for anything? So I kind of keep um, – I really like having, like, a collection of skulls. Mm. It's hard to do with bird taxidermy because you actually have to leave the skull in the animal. Um, but so with the echidna that I did and a few other ones, I have um, – you remove the skull and I've got those that I'm going to clean up and add them to the collection. Um, because of the nature of bird taxidermy, you're actually leaving most of the skeleton – like you're leaving the arms or the wings and the legs in the specimen. So you oh, don't yeah. really end up with a full um, skeleton at the end of it. Yeah. Uh, but with larger animal taxidermy, so um, – if we ever did lions or anything like that, where you're actually skinning the animal and, and um, 
tanning the pelt, then you're actually taking all the bones out with them. And something as valuable or, you know, conservation-wise as a lion, um, they clean that up with these... Uh, they've got these sort of tanks, these, like, of bugs, essentially flesh-eating beetles. Oh, wow. um, so they, they remove all the muscles. The, the scientists will remove all the muscles and as much as they can from the skeleton. They'll dry it out for two weeks and then they give it... Uh, to in, put it into these tubs with these bugs and they will strip it clean. Whoa. And then that'll go into the collection. So the museum actually has like thousands and thousands of skeletons in little, you know, boxes that have all been cleaned and yeah. What a cool use of nature. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. It. I think it's, that's what I like a lot of, a lot of hobby taxidermists. I think also um, I've seen sort of, will try to use everything in the animal. So um, yeah, like I have, I've taken like bird bones and that sort of thing and tried to clean them and use them in, um, jewelry or something like that, you know, um, to kind of not let anything go to waste. Yeah. yeah. When you look at other people who do taxidermy in their work, mm. are there any kind of like stylistic things that are done, which means you can tell who's who's done the piece? Um, interestingly, a lot of old taxidermy, um, like pre-1900s, is identified through sort of like trademark looks and that sort of thing. I think there's, I think the taxidermist's name is Roland and Ward, but I might have that wrong. Um, did a lot of foxes and um, coyotes and wolves and that sort of thing. And they have like a really um, quite a, like, what's it, how would I say it? Um, kind of, yeah, like a trademark snarl to them. So oh. their teeth are bared in a certain way and the tongue's a certain shape and that sort of thing. And they've got wrinkles on their nose in a kind of threatening way. Um, and that taxidermist in particular is kind of famous for that. So a lot of old taxidermy is identifiable through that. Modern taxidermy, I think it's hard to say because I think the focus is less on um, making it impressive mm. than it is on making it true to nature. So you imagine if back in the day, if someone did, shoot a lion and want it at taxidermy, they want it to look as threatening as possible. Yeah. When lions really, they don't walk around snarling at everyone and anything. They're, they're giant pussycats. So um, nowadays it's probably less of a signature of the artist uh, than there used to be. Yeah. yeah. Of course, I'm sure there's uh, artists in terms of hunting trophies and that sort of thing that do in a particular way, you know, try to add a flair to the, to the art. But yeah. A cheeky yeah. little extra bit of design. Yeah, yeah. Make the <laughs> teeth bigger on the boar and that sort of thing I've heard of people doing. Because you're dealing with, you know, uh, specimens of animals that have died and it is, as we've said, quite macabre. Yeah. How has that affected your relationship with death? Do you find you're numb to it? Does it make you reflect on your mortality more? Like, yeah. has it changed your thoughts? I think, um, so I was raised Catholic and, and was Catholic uh, sort of until I was 16 um, and then I kind of fell out of faith and I'm an atheist now. Um, but it's actually been kind of a long journey that's been happening alongside my interest in taxidermy and, and that sort of thing. I, I'm definitely not numb to death. I think I find it terrifying but fascinating and I think taxidermy has actually helped me feel a bit more at peace about it um, because when you're handling the animals, yes, it was an animal and it was it was a being that had you know, thoughts and, and, and needs and that sort of thing. But now it's kind of what's left. Mm. It's kind of, I don't see that as the animal anymore. It's what that animal left behind in the world. Um, yeah, I, I kind of, it's going to sound a bit hippie, but I kind of take the view of, you know, we all return to the earth kind of thing. Um, it's like the atoms that are used to make me eventually when I go into the, you know, when I get cremated, are going to go and create something else in the world. So yeah, I think, 
being that close to death and that sort of thing has changed my view for the better and made me a bit more comfortable with it. Um, although, interestingly, I think it's kind of kind of alienated me in some ways in talking about death with other people. Um, I think we're kind of closed off to it in Western culture. Um, we don't want to be involved in 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 funerals and that sort of thing. We get a funeral director to do it. It's always third party and then you go to the funeral and it's done and that sort of thing. But I kind of want to be involved in it, be closer to it, to deal with it. Yeah, I kind of go that way about it. Yeah. yeah. And I can imagine working with it for so long it would always seem strange to then be yeah. so separated. Yeah. Is the taxidermy industry kind of thriving is it on the decline is it always going to stay niche what is your thoughts on that yeah i think i think it depends country to country um australia doesn't have a lot of game animals i think uh there won't really ever be a large um gosh what's the word sorry um i don't think that we'll ever really need lots and lots of game taxidermists and that yeah. sort of thing um i think Museums will always need taxidermists in the same way that they'll always need scientists and, and sculptors and moulders and that sort of thing. Um, it's just always going to be a part of uh, the nature of the work. Um, we there are you know you can make models and replicas of things, but you can never quite get as good as the real thing. And mm. as close to the real thing is the real thing, but taxidermy. So yeah, um, I think it's it's a lot of people say it's a dying craft. But I really, I don't like to think of it like that because it's not dying. It's just always been quite a niche craft. And I find also that a lot of the crafts that we say are dying crafts are just crafts that we don't necessarily need anymore in our culture, um, but are needed elsewhere. Um, you think about shoemakers and that sort of thing, and you think cobblers and that, you know, it's a, it's a dying craft and there's not that many, but in third world countries, they need cobblers because they don't have, you know, they don't have the the money or you know to actually go and buy the things that we can afford mm. um yeah yeah so, i like that and maybe yeah. just because you don't know about it doesn't mean it's actually dying yeah up. yeah exactly it's just not as prevalent here thinking about how there's not many taxidermists out there and not many that you've met yourself have you met some strange people yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah a lot of strange people but they're always the best people i think anyone who can give you a bizarre perspective on life is someone who you're going to remember forever yeah and life is going to be boring as all life's going to be very boring <laughs> if you only ever stick with people who tell you what you think and you know tell you the same things that you believe and that sort of thing yeah and then thinking i guess about you know sharing your love of taxidermy with your family and your loved ones we've mentioned yeah. you've been trying to teach your brother yeah. how does your kind of closer inner circle feel about your work yeah they love me for who i am <laughs> <laughs> i think when i got into it they were just they were just shaking their heads saying, of course. I mean, that's that's so chucky. Like, I've always been interested in weird stuff. I think yeah. when I got into it, mum told me um, that when I was 12, for my birthday, I asked for a bottle of formaldehyde, which is what preserves <laughs> animals. And sadly, I didn't get it for my birthday. Um, but she said that from then on, she knew that I was always going to do something weird like yeah. this. So my girlfriend is wonderfully supportive of it. Um, got a couple pieces around the house and that sort of thing. And most of all, my nephews and my nieces just think it's the coolest thing. Aww. Yeah. They, um, when they come stay at grandma's, um, in, I, a lot of my taxidermy is at my mum's house. Mm -hmm. I just don't have the space for it at my house. Um, but it's set up in a room and that's the room that they sleep in. So there's all these owls on the oh walls and echidnas and that sort of thing. So 
Yeah, and and people are just really keen to learn about it. Yeah. I think it's it's um I'm never short of a conversation topic at parties. This is true. Yeah, this is very true. Yeah, I have no doubt. Just like I say every single week, that you probably have a million fun facts. Yep. But I was wondering if you had a fun fact you would like to share with the listeners. Hmm, a fun fact. There's a, oh, there's so many. I mean, there's there's lots that I've got from the museum and and that sort of thing. But in terms of taxidermy, um. I might have to think about it for yeah. a while. I meant to have one planned, but I didn't. <laughs> how do you do the eyes? Are there any fun facts around just like how you do yeah, the we, eyes? Yeah, we found out a really good cheat. Um, so you can order, uh, there's places that sell specific bird eyes. Oh. And so you can buy tawny frogmouth eyes and this oh. sort of thing in the different colours. Um, but they also sell just sort of uh, a dome-shaped piece of glass. You can order that in different sizes. And all you do is you get a really high resolution picture of the animal's eye. You print that out and you stick it to the glass. And so you end up with a really realistic eyes because it's got the iris in it. It's got all the colors through it and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, That's a great fact. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so yeah. much for coming on the podcast today, thank Chucky. That's no, been great. Thank you for listening to the Particle Podcast. You can find more of our content on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. Particle is powered by SciTech and everything we make is made in the wonderful science hub of Western Australia on Wadjuk Country.